0: Galatians chapter 3 if you need a Bible we can supply you with one just raise your hand we'll be glad to share a copy of God's word and there is a note page in your bulletin you might want to retrieve that as well and church family we return once again to our verse by verse explorer Paul's letter to the Galatian church which is also a letter from God to us and by the time that we are done this morning we're going to be halfway through the book There's six chapters. We'll be done with chapter 3. No cheering, please, right? (laughs) Halfway done, as we take on this morning, verses 15 to 29 of chapter 3. And that's a pretty big chunk. If you're a Bible church regular, you know that's a pretty big chunk. So you're going to feel like we've been drinking out of a fire hose by the time we're done today, but that is all right. The Apostle Paul, the writer of this letter, as he is directed by the Holy Spirit, is, as we have come to learn dealing with the all-important issue of salvation, salvation for sinners like us. The very first issue that the brand-new church that God created in the first century, the, the first great crisis that it had to contend with didn't have to do with, with pagan uh, idols um, or or cults. It didn't have to do with church government. It didn't have to do with the issue of election versus free will and all of that stuff or gay marriage or any of a thousand other things that the church has to contend with now, the first great crisis the church had to deal with had to do with you and me, Gentiles, non-Jewish persons, because that's what most of us in this room are this morning. Can non-Jewish people have a right relationship with the one true God? And if they can, how does that happen for them? Do they have to come through the rich traditions of the Jewish people since Jesus was Jewish? Do they have to believe in Jesus plus observe all the ways of the Jews and be vigilant to keep the law of Moses like the Jews tried to do for centuries in order to be accepted by God? Or can a person just come as they are and trust Jesus? Trust in his death on the cross for the sin in their life. Trust in him. Believe God when God says that it is by faith alone, through Jesus alone, that anyone is saved. How does it work? Well, that was the question being contested in first century Galatia. Paul had gone to this region of Asia Minor a year and a half earlier and and had said uh, in his message he said, "Yes, anyone, anybody, jew or non jew can have a relationship with with the Living God forever, be justified, which means to be pronounced not guilty, fully righteous before God, be justified, be saved, be redeemed by placing his or her faith in Jesus Christ and his cross alone." And nothing else is added. No self-improvement effort needed. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We've drilled that into our heads and into our hearts since we began. And the non-Jewish men and women and young people in Galatia embraced this glorious gospel message that, that the Holy Spirit brought through Paul. And they did that with great excitement because all of their lives they had been trying to appease their gods with small g, their, their idols, trying to win the approval of their gods, the favor of their gods, the acceptance of their god by doing certain things and not doing other things. And, and so when Paul comes with the gospel of Jesus alone, well, that was an incredibly exciting thing for them. It was liberating. It was freeing. But it wasn't long, if you remember, that after that, and and Paul had had, had left them, that false teachers, Jewish teachers called Judaizers, snuck in behind Paul, and, and they cried, foul, foul. They accused Paul of not knowing what he was talking about. Paul keeps talking about faith only in Jesus, they said, as if Abraham, the father of the Jews through whom Jesus came, really isn't very important. And he talks as if Moses and the covenant of the law, the rules, the commandments of God, uh, they they don't really matter much either. Paul's thrown it all out. And you, you you Galatians, Gentiles, you need to know that he is wrong. Unless you believe in Jesus and keep the law of Moses with the same diligence that we Jews do, well, you're really not saved. And so the false teachers were presenting a false gospel. Salvation by works. Salvation by doing. Salvation by trying to earn God's approval by the way that you perform. Well, the answer to the question then of the true gospel was definitely on the line. What is it? By works or is it by grace through faith in Jesus alone? Now, these false teachers had truly misrepresented Paul. Because he never said there was no place for the law of God in a Christian's life. He never said that. What he said was that there is no place for relying on the law of God to save you. Is there a difference? Well, there's a huge difference, isn't there? You remember verse 10 of chapter 3 last week? If you look in your Bible, we were in this part of, the, of, the, of this chapter. Paul writes, for all who... What's the next word? Rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Since no one can keep the law of God perfectly, Paul says, You better not rely on that as your hope of salvation because you will be eternally disappointed. The law cannot save you. Pretty clear, we would think. At the center of this salvation debate are what we can call for today two covenants, two agreements. One through Abraham, the other through Moses. One is a covenant of faith, the other is a covenant of works. One is based on a promise, the other is based on the law. Now, by way of a little bit of background, in case maybe you're, you're fairly new to the Christian faith and you're still kind of trying to figure out how does all this fit together and what is the Old Testament story and, and, and all of that, let me just give you a little background. Uh, some of you, this will be well known to you. Back in Genesis chapter 12, the very first book of the Bible, God comes to Abraham because God has a plan for how he will deal with sin in a person's life, any person's life, your life, my life. When God first spoke to Abraham in chapter 12, he says, Abraham, I, I, you're just one man and you're a Gentile in this moment, but I'm going to make you into a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and, though, uh, and, and through you, through the nation that will come from you, I will send one who will bless the whole world and all the people in it. Now that someone was who? Of course, it was. It's the promise of Jesus, and and this was God's incredibly gracious, unearned by Abraham, undeserved by Abraham promise to him. Every bit of it rests with God, and it all is on God. The emphasis is a hundred percent. On what God's going to do. I, 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 I will do this and this and this. It was a one-sided, totally unconditional promise from God to Abraham. There's only one thing that God was looking for Abraham to say. And that was, okay, I believe you. That's it. That's all, he, that's all that God was looking for from him. And when Abraham said that, God said, Excellent. Excellent, I will impute to your life account a right standing before me simply on the basis of your faith in what I have promised you, what I have said. I will count your faith as if it were my righteousness granted to your life, imputed to your life. Well, several centuries later, God introduced a second covenant, the covenant of the law. God raises up another whose name is Moses because Abraham's descendants have now indeed grown into a a great nation just as God had promised. So God leads the children of Israel uh, through Moses to a a mountain out in the desert, we read, and in Exodus. and, and, And there he gives them a set of laws, a set of rules, regulations for how he wants his people to live before him and before all of the godless cultures that were around them. How very different this covenant of the law is from the covenant of promise. It's not a salvation covenant. It's a conduct covenant. It's not based on God's personal and and one-sided promise. This covenant is based on a a mutual cooperation. His people agreeing to keep God's law, which is summed up most clearly in the Ten Commandments, but, but way bigger than that. You shall do this, you shall not do this, you shall do this, but not that. These are the things I expect you to do. These are the things that I don't want you to do. Keep my laws, God says, because they're a reflection of my character, my nature. You're my people, Israel. And when you do that, you'll know my blessing. And when you break my laws, you're going to know heartache. You're going to know loss. As we know, Israel repeatedly failed to keep God's law. So we have two different men. We have two different covenants, two different purposes that God had in mind for each. The first is based on a one-sided promise through faith. The second is a mutual cooperation covenant based on law through devotion and human effort. With Abraham, the focus is totally on God and our faith. With Moses, the focus is on the rules and on performing them well. Very different, these two covenants, but very important Now, the Judaizers accused Paul of completely tossing out Moses and the law. And they were very careful to stress that that Moses actually came after Abraham. And so so he's actually superior to and greater than the promise given to Moses. And so this is what Paul is dealing with in this passage that we're going to share together. And you needed to have that bit of historical background. So let's dive in now. Your Bible is open. Your phone is on. Your iPad is ready, right? You're charged? Okay. Verses 15 to 18. First four verses. Paul says, Listen, my dear Galatian brothers and sisters. Contrary to what these false teachers are telling you, the law can't undo the promise. Is that important? You bet that's important. Verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified, once it has been agreed upon. So Paul begins with an illustration, pointing out how contracts between two human parties work. And, and when you're young, uh, you may not have much experience with contracts, but, but as you get older, well, you begin to enter into more and more contracts, right? And uh, sooner or later, we all get to do what? Sign on the dotted line, Right? We know about contracts. You buy a home or you rent a home, what are you going to do? Oh, you're going to sign a contract. You want to go to college? You're going to sign a contract, and either you or your parents get to pay for that, right? But you've agreed to that. You you buy a car, you sign a contract, and you state that you will pay for that car at $250 a month for X number of, of years. Now, six months down the road, you cannot say, you know, I just don't want to pay $250 a month anymore. I think I'll pay 25 <laughs> I like that better. Oh, you can't say that. You can't do that. You can't write a note to the lender and say, to whom it may concern, I'm now going to pay you $25 a month sincerely, and you write your name. You made an agreement. You entered into a contract, a covenant The lender will nicely but very clearly inform you that you either pay what you agreed to or they're going to come get your car, right? Paul's point is that if this is our understanding of how a covenant works between two parties in the human arena, how much more will that be true when God is involved and he makes a covenant? He makes a promise. God is never breaks a promise. Amen? Amen. We we live in that truth. He's not gonna say, sometime down the road, after making a promise to Abraham and his descendants, forever. He's not gonna come along and, and change his mind. And in fact we read several places in 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 the scriptures. Just give you one. First Samuel chapter fifteen, verse twenty-nine. This is a truth that is stated many times in our Bibles He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. God is going to honor the covenants that he makes. That's Paul's point. Verse 16. Now the promises, and Paul uses this word promise or promises eight times in this this section. It's kind of cool to go with your highlighter and find all eight of those and highlight those in your Bible because this is really a section about God's promises. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring or maybe your version uses the word seed. It does not say and to offsprings or seeds referring to many but referring to one and to your offspring singular who is Christ. Now, watch carefully, church family, what Paul, the Jewish scholar, well-trained in the Old Testament, does in this moment. He refers to a verse out of Genesis chapter 22. It's verse 18. But he doesn't quote the verse. Right after Abraham had had uh, had his hand held back from, from plunging the knife into Isaac, you remember this? In Genesis chapter 22 on Mount Moriah, God, God tells him to... To offer up his son and Abraham in faith is going to do that. And then God holds his hand back and provides a substitute, a beautiful picture of Jesus. In that chapter and in verse 18, we read these words. God speaks to Abraham and says, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, the same Holy Spirit who wrote that verse, Genesis 18 22 verse 18 interprets the verse for us now in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, letting us know that the offspring from Abraham that would bring salvation blessing to all the nations of the earth was singular. Who would that be? That would be Jesus, right? God was not referring to the Jewish nation here because you can take that word offspring to be plural. But, but the Holy Spirit is clarifying that. Offspring here, singular, a single person. Abraham's greatest descendant, the ultimate offspring, Jesus, is at the center of this promise. When we say that our Bibles are inerrant and they are the inspired word of God, church family, that is true. That is true right down to the letters, isn't it? that make a word singular or make the word plural. On a single grammatical point the Holy Spirit confirms that God's salvation promise is going to come through one person and that is Jesus. Salvation does not come to Gentiles as they follow the ways and the rules and the customs of the Jewish nation as the false teachers were saying. The promised seed singular is superior. And then Paul chases that thought with verse 17. Oh, well, this is what I mean, he says. The law, which came 430 years after, after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void or empty or no good. For if the inheritance, if salvation comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying, Listen to me, my Galatian friends and my Bible church family. God made a promise to Abraham. He gave the law to Moses 430 years after that. The covenant made with Moses cannot nullify the first promise that God made to Abraham through the seed singular, through Jesus. God keeps his promises. He never scratches his head, and this is so cool. He never scratches his head and he's and saying, let's see, 430 years ago, I said something to a guy uh, that I was going to do and uh, just, just can't seem to pull it up. God never does that, does he? The covenant of the law given through Moses does not replace, it does not annul God's personal promise to bless the whole earth through Jesus Christ. The way of faith is God's, is God's promise, and it's superior to the way of the law. And that's Paul's point. The Judaizers might then fire back at Paul, well, then why did God give the law in the first place? I mean, if it if it doesn't really have a have a bearing in the salvation thing, why did he give it in the first place? How does the law fit in your salvation teaching, Paul? And he anticipates that line of questioning, and he preempts it in verse 19. This would be number two on your note page. So why then? Is, so what then is the purpose of the law? Verse 19. Why then the law? Well, it was added. Because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And then he inserts this, this, this little sidebar comment almost on impulse. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Let, let me speak to that last little secondary thought because it's, it is important. But it, it, it kind of catches us off guard. Paul is saying, listen, the, the law came to the children of Israel third hand from God to angels from angels to Moses and from Moses to the people of Israel unlike the com the covenant of promise which came directly from God to who to who Abraham. to Abraham right he spoke directly to him without a, a go-between and so Paul's pointing out that the Judaizers who want to make salvation all about law-keeping should remember that the law came to Israel by by, down, by three generations down versus the promise of Jesus that came directly from God to Abraham. He's just making the promise, It just makes the promise superior in yet another way and and so Paul throws that in for free. Back to the original question, why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. God never gave his law to Israel via angels, And Moses in order to make people good. In order to make people holy. Its purpose, says Paul, was to show Israel and indeed all people just how not good and unholy they really are. That's the purpose. The law was designed by God from the beginning to lift off the lid of our own self-righteous assessments that we make of ourselves so that we can look at ourselves and see who we really are. We look through the law and we go, Ugh. Ugh. yuck. Am I really in that bad of a condition? As I stand before a holy God, the law helps us to see ourselves. On your note page, I refer to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Paul writes a young pastor and he says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, this is important, that the law was not laid down for the who? For the just, for the righteous, for the holy but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murders, the sexually immoral, immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Ugh. Yuck. That's what the law is supposed to do. In fact, think of a law like this. As, as an illustration, it's kind of like a flashlight. You're driving down the road one pitch black night and and your car just dies. It, it just quits running. Motor dies and you coast to a stop. Well, what do you do? Well, you reach in the glove box, you grab the flashlight and you go look under the hood and as you flash the light around, you discover instantly with the aid of your flashlight that you have a broken fan belt. Now, the flashlight can show you that you have a broken fan belt, but it can't fix the fan belt, right? You can't rub it all over that broken fan belt and somehow get that fan belt back on on track, right? It can just show you that you have a serious problem, but it can't do anything about the broken belt. And the law of God, the Mosaic law is exactly like that. It's like a flashlight. Its purpose is to reveal... Its purpose is not to fix. In fact, it can't do that. God gave righteous standards. He gave his standards through Mosaic Covenant to expose the sin that's in our hearts, that's in our our lives. The law can never deal with the sin itself because it was never intended to do that. On on your page, I reference Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. We'll put it up on the screen. Now, Paul writes and he says to the Roman church, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. What does that mean again? Pronounced not guilty, fully righteous before God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of what? Sin. This verse, These two verses are saying the law was given so you can know what's going on inside of you. The law was designed to reveal the sin in your life, not deal with the consequence of it. Of it. That, that's Jesus' job. And then Paul will clarify that even more, the role of the law, when he writes this about himself in chapter 7 of Romans. What then shall I say? That the law is sin? Because it exposes sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive in me and I died. The very commandment that promised life to me, if I could keep it, now brings death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through that commandment it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Another illustration. Do you remember perhaps when, when you were in high school science class and your teacher broke out for the first time the microscopes and showed you a whole new world? Do you remember that, high school days? Some of you. Do you remember, do you remember going to high school? Do you remember? Do, do you remember? <laughs> for some of us, that's getting harder and harder to do. <laughs> well, Life under a microscope looks very different than life with the naked eye. Uh, just, just an example. Take the blade of, of, a, of a knife, for example. You look at it with your naked eye and it appears to have a very sharp, very smooth, very shiny, uh, finely ground edge. It's sharp. But you put that knife under a microscope and you discover that that, that knife edge is actually very rough. It's pitted and it's, it's not really sharp at all under a microscope. And we go, wow, you know, that's amazing. I would not have known that this blade is not what I thought it was without the revealing help of the microscope. And that's really what the law of God does with our lives as it relates to the sin that's there. The light, the flashlight, and the lens of the perfect law of God show the dark, the jagged, the harsh, the ugly, the sin-infected, the sin-pitted reality that is my life before Jesus Christ. The law, Paul says, was never meant to give us salvation or remove sin's ravaging effects. It was intended from the start to convict us and to compel us to run to God's solution for our sin. His solution is the promise. And the promise is who? Jesus the law, he says in Romans 7, is holy and it is righteous and it is good. But it can never make me holy. It can never make me righteous. It can never make me good. It, can, it can't take away the penalty of my sin. It can just expose the reality of that sin. So verse 9, 19, one more time. So why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring singular should come to whom the promise had been made. You might know the name D.L. Moody, a preacher from an age past. He writes, the law tells me how crooked I am. And then God's grace through Jesus comes along and straightens me out. That's how it works. The Apostle John will say it uh, this way at the very beginning of his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. What's the last line? Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. What the law, though it is good, can never do, make us good before God, the promise by faith does through faith in Jesus. So Paul's effectively saying to the Galatians, listen, you, can't you see that, that God's way is the way of Abraham? It's the, it's the way of faith in Jesus. It's not as the Judaizers are trying to tell you that God's way is the way of Moses, the way of the law. The, the, that, that can never change you. It can only show you how much you need to be changed. That's all the law can do. The way of faith changes you and it changes you from the inside out through faith in Jesus. Verse 20. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one Now that we read that verse in the flow here, and we 're just thinking what i, I, I don 't even know what that means. What Paul is saying here is that there are two covenants: one made with Abraham, the other made through Moses, but it is the same God who made them both one covenant doesn't cancel out the other covenant, the the, the law, just because it came later, can't nullify the promise. We just read that. And the promise doesn't mean that the law is not important because it's good. The law and and the promise were both made by God. And that's the point. They don't compete. But you have to understand, Paul says, the law serves the promise. The promise doesn't serve the law. The law shows us how much we need the promise. Not the other way around. Verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not! Exclamation point. King James. God forbid. NIV. Absolutely not. The Tim version. No way, Jose. <laughs> For if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. If we could be saved by doing good things, Paul says, by keeping all the rules and the commands of God, then Jesus' death in our place would not have been necessary. But church family, do you remember how Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before He was crucified for us? Do you remember how He prayed? He prayed this way, Father, if there is any other way any other way, let this cup of death and, 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 and your divine judgment for, the, for sin, let that pass from me. Don't allow me to drink that cup. If there's any other way, it is so horrific to me to think about becoming Tim's sin and, and all the other folks at Idlewild Bible Church's sin and, and becoming indeed a curse for the whole world. That is so horrific a thought for me that if there's any other way, Let the cup pass from me. And yet, what does Jesus say? Not my will, but what? Your will be done. What was Jesus acknowledging in that prayer? What was he acknowledging? He was acknowledging that no law, no rule, no command existed that could forgive sin and bring life. That's really what he's saying. The fact that Jesus went to the cross... Proves the law would never and could never be our way into a relationship with God. Jesus would never have died if it could. Verse 22. But the scripture or the law imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. One more time as if we're not getting it. The law can condemn It cannot vindicate. It can imprison. It cannot set us free. It can show us how sick we are, but it cannot heal us. It can show us how broken we are, but it can never make us whole. For that there is only one solution, and it is faith in Jesus, that we're made righteous in God's sight by Him and not by trying to be good or to earn God's love or his acceptance paul goes on now in verses 23 to 25 to say this that the law actually points us to the promise and that's important the law has a place it has a purpose the law points us to the promise not the other way around as the judaizers want us to believe number 3 there on your page The law points to the promise. He uses two word pictures here to characterize the way that the law works in our salvation story, in yours and mine, and why we need it. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held, what? We were held captive under the law. Man, what a picture that is. We were imprisoned until the coming faith should be revealed. Paul likens the Mosaic law to a prison guard in this this moment. That's that's not a positive image, and that's exactly what Paul's intending. The law, he says, is like a prison cell with thick walls and bars, and it's, it's under the watchful eye of an armed guard. That's what the law is like in your life. And when you try to push beyond the walls, the guard is there to give you a taser, taser shot just to wake you up. That's what the law does. Break the rules, experience the consequences. The law is, is like a prison guard. Now, part of the good role of the law of God is to, is to hold people's sin in check, to restrain it, to keep sin from going as far as it would go if it, if it didn't have that guard. But every, for every sinner, for you and for me, the law, we know this, the law is burdensome. It's heavy. It's unpleasant. It's not the way we want to live. Imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Who is that? That's Jesus, isn't it? Under the guard until Jesus comes. And then when Jesus comes and we put our faith in Him, we are set free from that prison and, and our hearts are transformed from having to do the rules to wanting to do the rules out of our love for Jesus. Very different. That's why Paul writes in Galatians five one across from the page there where you're, you and I are at, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Do not let the Judaizers... Put you under a yoke again. Don't let them put you under the guard of the law. The second word picture in verse twenty-four. So then, the law was our guardian. The Greek word here is paedagogos. Well, that's a mouthful. Paedagogos. That that word means tutor. So 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 the law of God is a is a is a prison guard, and the law of God is like a tutor. And in Paul's day, a, a paedagogos was a was in charge of a child's education from age 7 to, to age 18. And, in, and, and generally speaking, the, it was a slave in the family who took on this role of the Pythagagos and taught the children in the family. Now, in Greek thought, this person was not seen favorably because people's memories of their tutors was not positive. When you were in school, did you ever have a teacher that when you think of them, your thoughts are not positive, right? They always had you in the hall or down at the principal's office or whatever. Well, that's kind of how, this is how this, this person was thought of. Oh, my tutor. Oh, yes. I remember that. I don't want to think about that person. Because, you see, the pedagogas made you made you do things you didn't want to do. They imposed rules and expectations on you and they dealt uh, out consequences when you didn't do what you were supposed to do. And you just never knew where you stood with the am I? Am, are they happy with me? Are they not happy with me? Uh, you would never have the Pythagagos on your favorites list on your phone. It, it just wouldn't happen. And the Pythagagos was only in your life for a time, never meant to rule over your life for the whole of your life, from 7 to eighteen. And that is what Paul's trying to say here. So then the law was our guardian, our paedagogos, but only until what? Until Christ came. In order that we might be what? Justified by faith, not by works of the law. The law is good, Paul says, because it restrains and it guards our natural sinful inclinations and it teaches us that we need Jesus. It points us to Him. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25. But now that faith has come, now that Jesus has come, we are no longer under that tutor. And we say amen. Right? Man, oh man. How, how What a glorious truth that is. Uh, allow me to read a quote to you from John Stott. He's a, he, he was an English pastor and scholar. He's gone home to be with the Lord, but boy, he just he kind of just boils all this down into to a couple of sentences. And he writes this We cannot come to Jesus to be justified until we have first been to Moses to be convicted. Is that good? To be convicted and condemned by our sin. But once we have gone to Moses and acknowledged our sin, our guilt, and our condemnation, we must not stay there. We must let Moses send us to Jesus. That's good. That is really good. The law has pointed us to Jesus, to the promise, Paul says. It has done its good work. My dear Galatian brothers and sisters and and Idlewild Bible Church family, you don't need to nor should you ever go backwards ever again and try to live under the covenant of the law. Stay in the promise. And then he wraps all this up. If you flip your note page over. With verses 26 to 29. For in Christ Jesus you are all what? What? I, I, I didn't get that. <laughs> Sons of God? Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are sons and daughters of God. Is that what he said? That's who you are. That's who I am. Romans chapter 8, Paul enlarges on this one verse statement by saying this to the Roman church family. It's on your note page. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. All who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery, it's a reference to the law. You didn't receive a spirit of law to fall back into fear again. That's when you had the guardian and the tutor. That's how you lived, but not anymore. You've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. Who are you right now? Through faith in Jesus, you're a son, a daughter of the high King of heaven. You're a co heir with Jesus of all that is heaven and all that is part of heaven. His inheritance is your inheritance. His heaven is your heaven through faith in Him. You are His son or daughter. Verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You've put on Jesus. Paul's not talking about water baptism here. He just uses the Greek word baptizo, which means to immerse. And when he uses that word, he's literally saying, you have been immersed into Jesus by your faith in Him. And you now have His righteousness Put on you by God. Your faith in Jesus results in his righteousness in your life. The Judaizers were saying, hey, you Gentiles, you need the law to be saved. Paul says, no way. I'm a son of God. I'm a daughter of God. And the righteousness of Jesus has been put on me. And as a result of that, all the various tags and labels that we use to distinguish people in our world, they're all erased, they're all gone, and they do not matter anymore. The Judaizers were saying, hey, you Gentiles, you non-Jewish Galatians, you better live like the Jews and then obey the law of Moses. Um, and, and, And if you don't, well, then... You're you're just out of it. You're, You're not like us Jews. Verse 28. Paul says, that's ridiculous. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all, what? One in Christ Jesus. God makes absolutely no distinction between any of us who put our full faith in Jesus and nothing else. Is that not glorious? No distinction in terms of our race, no distinction in terms of our rank or our vocation, no distinction distinction between our genders. The Judaizers were eager to impose those distinctions on the Gentiles. Paul says, no, through faith in Jesus, all the walls come down. We're all one. We're all on an equal footing. Uh, We're all the same in God's eyes. Every one of us in this room are the same. And I love that. Don't you love that? All of us the same. We, we share the same level ground of shared faith in Jesus. No one better, no one worse. One in Christ Jesus. And do you not remember on the night before Jesus was crucified when he prayed and he said, Father, make them one so that the world will know that you sent me. Paul closes with this. Verse 29. And if you are Christ's Then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Who am I? Who are you? You are sons and daughters of God, right? Verse 26 said that. But not only who are you, but whose are you? Whose are you today? Verse 29. If you are Christ's then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Whose are we? (laughs) We're Christ, aren't we? Through faith in Him. We're Jesus' possession, aren't we? We belong to Jesus. You are His. I am His through faith in Jesus. You talk about a comforting truth when you set it alongside of the Judaizers' salvation by works message. They never knew whose they were. You know whose you are. Remember what Jesus says, John chapter 10. We'll close with this. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will what? Snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because we belong to him. We belong to Him. We're His possession. Whose are you? You're Jesus. You're His possession. And no one can snatch you out of His hand. Use the law as a flashlight. Let it reveal what's wrong in your life, but never let the flashlight be the resource that you look to to fix you. Look to Jesus. He is the promise. Let His death on the cross in your place and His righteous life laid down over yours make you His personal possession and an heir of heaven forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Well, what glorious, glorious truth. And we really feel it like we have drunk out of a fire hose this morning, Heavenly Father. We admit that. And I just thank you for my friends and their patience, their willingness to, to wrestle with and to move through these verses like this. We want to know your word because your word will help us to live more effectively for you, to live in the freedom No longer under the prison guard. No longer with that tutor hanging over our shoulder, looking and watching. We are free through faith in Jesus. Thank you for your promise. Thank you for the good work of the law. But most of all, thank you for the promise that we have of life through Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen.